Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Albert. And I'm Max Anderson. And this episode we're offering some tips about how to make your games of Call of Cthulhu a bit more scary. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Well, it's just over a month to go now until Necronomicon. Woohoo! Yeah, I know, it's, it's come around terrifyingly fast in case you don't know this is the two yearly convention that takes place in providence uh, the birthplace of lovecraft and it's a convention centered around everything to do with lovecraft so it's fiction it's gaming it's it's, films yes films all manner of things and this year we're going to stay on to the sunday night to see the dunwich horror picture show yes yeah some some nice audience participation i hope so yeah But yeah, if anyone wants to meet up with us at any stage, uh, ping us ahead of time. I mean, obviously we're going to be quite busy while we're there, but we certainly want to try to meet up with as many people as possible. We'll share details when we've actually got our timetables for the conventions and, and know when we're free. Also rapidly approaching over the horizon, there's another publication coming. The Blasphemous Tome, issue four. It might even be out around the same time as this episode, but I'm maybe pushing it. I mean, certainly Mm -hmm. soon, at the very least. Yeah, at the time of recording, I'm waiting to get my grubby mitts on all the text so that I can put it together. So this is our fanzine that we produce for all of our backers on Patreon. So if you're a backer on Patreon, you'll receive a copy this time. It's PDF only, so it'll be coming into your email boxes or wherever um, very soon in July. Yeah, the tomes that we normally produce, we put out at Christmas time. Those are print ones, but this is a a special one with additional material that we weren't able to put in the last full Blasphemous Tome, uh, plus some new material. You're you're writing a scenario, I understand, Paul. Yeah, I've got a scenario called Fallout, which is a modern-day Call of Cthulhu scenario, starting around a hostage situation. And the players can take the role of uh, law enforcers, you know, resolving the situation, or it also occurred to me, a bit like in Blackwater Creek, they could be criminals coming to rescue one of their comrades that's been taken captive. Ooh. Given the last time I played law enforcement in one of your games, Paul, that sounds like the kind of game I would have a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't really matter whether you're a criminal or a law enforcer, does it, Matt? Just, just kill everyone. <laughs> it's a target-rich environment, however you look at it. Yes. <laughs> And good friend of the good friends, Max Mahaffa, has started up a new website. You were telling me about this, Paul. Yeah, Max has set up a page on Facebook entitled Burning Luck Reviews, in which he's going to review uh, various games. He's got a review up there now for the Call of Cthulhu starter set, among other things. Cool. Okay, well, we shall post a link to that in the show notes, um, unless I forget. And now on to our main topic, making Call of Cthulhu scary call of cthulhu as we said on on the podcast can be played in all sorts of different ways uh, i mean we've got pop cthulhu which ramps up the action we've you know used call of cthulhu for all sorts of style of games from you know fairly comedic ones as we've said before to you know more dark horror but regardless of the the gloss we put on it it is always at its heart a horror game isn't it and horror games at some point Really, should they try to scare people? Let's let's say, you know, for argument's sake, that they should. 
how do we do that? And, and what do we even mean by scared people anyway? Let's just get into what we mean by scary and frightening. And there's an article that Scott found in Psychology Today, so we can sound very intellectual as we talk <laughs> about this, which discusses what, what people's universal fears kind of are. It, it narrows it down into a bunch of categories. So we'll just go through those and, and highlight some of these and talk about how they relate into gaming. Uh, and the first one is extinction. Is, it, is there more to this just than the fear of death? You know, personal extinction, becoming nothing? If you have this sort of kind of idea that, oh, there's an afterlife, maybe you're not so scared of death. But what about total oblivion? Well, I think even if you do accept the idea of an afterlife, the idea of death is still scary because there's generally pain and suffering and you know, other unpleasantness that goes along with the process of dying. Mm. So that pretty much describes the process of life most of the time. <laughs> yes, but perhaps that's somewhat more accentuated towards the end of life. Mm -hmm. I guess fear is a difficult thing to communicate in the game, as we'll discuss. But, you know, certainly fear of death is a major one, I think. Yeah, well, I, it goes beyond, I think, just fear of death. Or at least a large part of it is a fear of predation. The fact that there might be things out there in the darkness that want to eat us, want to hunt us. I think that's something fairly primal, and it's something that a lot of horror films and horror stories draw upon. I mean, if you think about, you know, anything from monster movies to, you know, slasher films, that most of them do rely on the idea that something is hunting us, something wants to kill us. Maybe it wants to eat us, maybe it just wants to see us die, but we are prey. Thinking of the whole one where it says, fear of ceasing to exist... This is actually one of the moments that I feel most proud of in a, um, when I've run a game. That I had three out of four players in a cult game actively jump into Achilles and literally cease to exist even to an atomic level. And it was a fantastic ending. They embraced it wholeheartedly. <laughs> there was no fear there at all. It was, bring on oblivion! <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's actually an interesting point that... Again, we perhaps see this sometimes in horror films, this idea that death is preferable to uh, whatever you mm. know, we, we, we might encounter. I remember this being a fairly common thing in, in nightmares when I was young. <laughs> I, I don't know, maybe this isn't particularly healthy, but the idea that you know, there, there were certain things so frightening that I might encounter in nightmares that there was always the idea in the nightmare that death was preferable to seeing or encountering this thing. Hmm. I think in some cases, perhaps death is a way of escaping the fear, isn't it? I'm going to kill myself now so I don't have to, these horrible things aren't going to happen to me because they seem worse than death. But as you say, I mean, in games, it becomes a whole different thing because perhaps the threat of death is quite a good element to put in a game. But actual death of player characters is actually, I think, one of the least interesting aspects of horror because... Um, yeah, all right, you can have a fairly spectacular death, you can have a memorable way of going out, it might be gory, but the actual process of, right, okay, we put this character aside, we generate a new one, or this is the point if it's a one-shot that you're out of the game, is, I think, you know, sometimes anticlimactic, or, or at least deflating. It's the, probably the least satisfying end to a story as well, especially if it comes too soon, because then there's no way of continuing it on and giving it that satisfying end that you really wanted. Yeah, but on the other hand, the fear of death, I think that is quite a good way of building up tension and atmosphere. It's just, you know, it's kind of unfortunate that the delivery of it actually 
undermines all that. And this may be something we come back to later, sort of the difference between anticipation and the event itself. Mm. Then we have mutilation. This is anything that um, disgusts us, that, that happens to us. This can link to the fear of creepy crawlies and spiders and snakes. The point they, they were trying to make in the article is that, you know, when you think about things like snakes and spiders and so on, perhaps what frightens us about them is the venom that, you know, they might inflict upon us, uh, which will then either kill us or, or mutilate us in various ways, will cause disfigurement or, you know, perhaps cause limbs to be amputated. And this seems to link to me into phobias very much as well. You know, when you mm. think of a common one, perhaps the most stereotypical common one being arachnophobia, fear of spiders, uh, that if you bring that in, you know, you've got six players, you can almost guarantee somebody's freaked out by spiders. I mean, mm. if you want to, do you actually want to play on that or not? Because, you know, maybe that's not a good thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we'll definitely come back to that later in the episode. Because related to phobias as well, there's things like claustrophobia, uh, which is another one that sort of comes into games a lot. You know, getting shut in cupboards, being down in dark tunnels that get suddenly narrower, being shut. And the classic one, Ravenloft, where, you know, there's a certain bit where you sort of travel in down a passage or you do something and you get teleported into one of the graves and you're in a coffin. And then you kind of manage to push the lid off and there's like a bunch of ghouls stood around you and you're like, oh, pull the lid back on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but th th this falls under loss of autonomy. This is one that you know, I think particularly gets to me. I don't really have much in the way of phobias. I, I, there, there are a few things that really scare me. But one of the ones that I find very difficult to watch on in films is... Really tight enclosed spaces. I mean, it's, it's not just claustrophobia. There's a more technical term for it, which I think is clethrophobia, um, which is the fear of being trapped or imprisoned. It's, you know, of not being able to move, you know, of being in a really tight space that restricts you. So you really love that scene in The Descent, then? Yeah. I, that, that was the one I was about to mention, that that scene I couldn't actually look at on the screen. My palms literally sweated. That really scared me on a on a primal level i mean i think that's the difference to me i'm not sure if this is a psychological technical difference but a phobia can be an irrational thing like a fear of spiders if it's just a tiny spider that's non-poisonous the fear of it there's no reason for me to be frightened of it i'm like a billion times bigger than it i could squash it in my foot if i so wished uh whereas being in a tight confined tunnel underground it's like saying well i've got a fear of being stabbed in the eyes well yeah that's not an irrational <laughs> fear that's like i i know some people who very much have that really visceral kind of painful reaction to seeing that uh, yeah. yeah but my point is that, that something like being stabbed in the eyes that's very sensible to be frightened of that and yes you can be overly sensitive about your eyes and some people have a real thing about their eyes i, I get that but i'm just making the point that there are some things which you people are frightened of that in real life actually wouldn't harm them at all it's just a it's a, an irrational fear if you like well it's also a, a question of degree because for example i mean going back to you know watching the descent i mean that scene may have made a number of people comfortable uh, uncomfortable mm. You know, the fact is, I mean, it nearly gave me a panic attack just looking at that. And that's, I think, a bit of a difference in, mm. in scale. Mm. I've got a lot better about it over the years. I mean, when I was uh, younger, I used to get really uncomfortable using lifts uh, just because they were a tight and closed space. And that's not a rational fear. When I was a kid, I used to have recurring nightmares about uh, lifts uh, plummeting 
So there was that aspect of it as well. But it was the fact, you know, being in a small enclosed space uh, that that I could not control. I still don't like flying very much, uh, even though I know it's perfectly safe. Because, again, you know, it's a question of control. It's a question of being in an enclosed space where things like turbulence and so on might happen. And as soon as, yeah, I'm on a plane and it gets bumpy, my palms start sweating. I start, you know, I mean, you've been on a flight with me. Um, I've I been asleep through most that. of it, hence what I was going to say. Just <laughs> stay up all night before it and then sleep all the way. <laughs> That's the easy way to get through that problem. That's but- Matt's solution to fear, to sleep through it. <laughs> the slash is coming. <laughs> <laughs> Wake me up when it's done, yeah. Uh, but do you think from a gaming point of view, this whole idea of helplessness is something that really works in a game the same way as it does in a horror story or a horror film depends on how much you embrace the genre as a player personally i find it really pisses me off because it's like hey i'm gonna sit here like the shaken mechanic for example in savage worlds Mm. it's something where you are literally helpless you just sit there and wait until you pass a roll he's like yep i'm gonna wait here while everyone else has the fun gets to act contributes to the story this is bullshit but, but yeah. I mean, even getting aside from the whole round-by-round round thing of you know, your character is paralysed while everyone else is, is uh, doing stuff, I mean, there are a couple of times in games where I've had groups of player characters captured. It's a genre trope that happens in action films, it happens in horror, and so on. And the thing that I've found is that a lot of players sort of viscerally really react to that, that... You might, in a film, you know, quite happily have a protagonist captured and, you know, say, you know, even something like the James Bond films, Casino mm-hmm. Royale, Royale, you know, Bond gets captured, he gets tortured, Got he breaks glitch. free, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if you have a scene like that in a game, I, I'd say most people I've played with will react very badly to that, will kick back against it, won't want their character to be captured in the first place. Because that feeling of helplessness, it doesn't build horrors. Like you say, it builds frustration in the game. Mm. Yeah, I think it has to happen organically to some degree. If, if, if it's something that causes you to disconnect, then it's not going to frighten you. One case I can think of, it might well even be relief. Let's say, for example, that you're captured after your character goes, uh, goes down unconscious. You wake up and suddenly find you're tied up in a basement somewhere. At least you think, oh, at least I didn't coup de grammy. Yay! <laughs> So at least there's the potential that it could give you options later, but it's where stuff happens around you and for a prolonged period where you suddenly find that, oh, I might as well not even be here at the table. You might as well just be describing something and I'll listen to it later on, on dictaphone. That That's when it becomes frustrating. So thinking of things that, that might also be frustrating, there's the idea of, of separation. Uh, this is another one they identified as a universal fear. Now, I think in the article they were much more focused on uh, the idea of social isolation, of fear. They, they described it as being a non-person. But I think also you've got you know, very much physical isolation, which you know, we, we've talked about before as being, I think, a fairly essential element of horror. I think this comes across in Call of Cthulhu with the loss of sanity. As that's sort of driven down, you can end up losing your connections to family and friends and mm. becoming isolated as you see in Lovecraft stories you know with the guy in the attic writing his final memoirs not knowing anybody and being isolated which is very much that feeling of separation I think that feeling of horror of loss of you know a social network 
not just as something that happens during the course of a game. I think it's quite a powerful thing, perhaps, to put in there to begin with. So, for example, I I wrote a a scenario a while back called Bleak Prospect, where I very much wanted to play on that idea of isolation. The characters in it are all people who have fallen through the cracks of society and are living in a shanty town in Depression-era Massachusetts. And the idea is that a lot of the normal means of support that people might have in the society, you know, the police, medical services, just the community in general, are not available to them because they are seen very much as being outsiders. Mm. So when bad things happen to them, I, I'd like to think it makes it all the more horrific because you know they don't have anyone to turn to. Yeah, so being outcasts in society, I think that's, that's perfect. Cause it, it's kind of nice that it highlights that dilemma for people as well and i think there's also the classic horror uh, trope that we see i mean for example i I think the classic example of this is the shadow of rinsmith of just being somewhere where you don't feel like you belong so when you know olmstead turns up in innsmouth and it's full of these very strange people who perhaps aren't particularly welcoming and treat him in strange ways and the whole place is just repellent his feeling of horror his feeling of discomfort it isn't just because you know, he's encountering monsters and ancient secrets and stuff like that. It is very much that he's somewhere that he doesn't belong. This also makes me think of the classic RPG technique of knock them out and take their uniforms, of you know infiltrating some society or base or you know community and trying to pretend to be one of them. You can't call on them for help, and you've kind of got to stay undercover and pretend that fear of exposure and them turning on you. Yeah, that's definitely one way to breed tension because there's always that living on a knife edge is when is someone going to realise, hang on a minute, I don't recognise your face, I haven't seen you around here. Yeah. Or you're wearing that uniform the one way around, you say thank you when someone asks, uh, when someone says good luck, that kind of thing. Are you local at all? <laughs> <laughs> I think a great example of that as well is Invasion of the Body Snatchers uh, because there it's worse than that because you know, it's all people who you thought you knew before who are suddenly acting in strange ways. You, know, you learn that they're being replaced and suddenly they're operating by a set of rules you don't understand. Usually involving pointing at you and screaming in a high-pitched <laughs> volume. And then we have something entitled Ego Death. What's that all about? The idea of ego death is it's anything that undermines our sense of self. So humiliation, shame, anything like that. The idea that we discover that we are not the person we thought. You know, perhaps we've always thought of ourselves as, as being good people. And suddenly we're confronted with the consequences of our actions or something that we've done thoughtlessly, which we suddenly realise means we are not the people we thought we were. Hmm. That pretty much describes every day of working in a corporate environment. (laughs) (laughs) The soul destruction that goes on. Yep. But yeah, I guess, again, I would say sanity is a mechanic Mm. that kind of enforces this. So if you, in a call of Cthulhu, if you fail a sanity role, you get that involuntary action. So you might sort of, as a person, say, well, you know, I'd I'd help my friends. I wouldn't run away. But then you fail that sanity role and the keeper gets to describe how you wet yourself, drop your gun and run out the room, which perhaps would be the thing that actually happens, even though in the mm. cold light of day you say, oh, no, no, you know, I'd, 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 I'd go down that alley and fight those punks off who are attacking that poor <laughs> yes. helpless person. Yeah, I'm sure you would. You'd like to think you would, and I'd like to think I would, but actually faced with the reality of it, I don't think I'd be brave enough. I can't remember what 
uh, what the name of the film is, but I remember um, being on some list. You're probably going to jump in, Scott, and say what the film is immediately. It starts off with the premise that there's an avalanche coming, that there's a hotel at the bottom of the mountain, and the husband, uh, this husband and wife couple, literally just runs. It's like, no, fuck it, self-preservation, and just legs it. Oh, yeah, um, and yes. then the wife yeah. survives, and later on there's uh, the a scene where they confront each other about this. And apparently it's a very, very, very difficult scene to watch because of the guy breaking down and literally saying about it, it was all just self-preservation, but his shame of having left his wife and not even attempted to help. The fear at that point just became so great, his only action was run. Hmm. I mean, you've talked about how, you know, the sanity mechanic models this to some extent, but do you think it's something that works to actually build a sense of fear or disquiet at the gaming table? Yeah, I'm not really seeing that in the example I gave. It wouldn't cause me as a player to feel scared or almost feel a sense of relief that I'd been given an out to run yeah. away yeah, or just a sense of excitement, you know, in that the thing might be chasing me next or whatever. Not really... F- personal fear i think the people that are left behind might feel more frightened so it might work on that front your friends have just run out the room and now you're left alone facing this thing so possibly in that way but i think it's one of these things like you know when we were talking uh, in the violence episode about uh how you know your reaction to role-playing violence is different because you're not feeling the pain you're not feeling the panic I, I think this is one of these things where, because it's role-playing, you're acting at a degree of emotional remove from the events that are happening. Except in very rare circumstances, you aren't necessarily going to feel the emotions that your character is feeling. You could potentially, as a, as a keeper or as a GM, try to really ram that home. But if a lot of it relies on you know, humiliation or really horrible emotions... Yeah, that's probably not something you want to try to inflict upon a player. Yeah, I think I'd be pretty upset personally if it was something that felt very real and you took it very personally. So that, yeah, that's definitely not something I'd want to inflict on anyone as a GM either. But there is one big fear that we see in Call of Cthulhu that isn't listed on these universal ones, which uh, Lovecraft actually kind of called out in supernatural horror and literature, which is that whole idea of the fear of the unknown. And I guess it uses different elements of some of these, but in its Lovecraftian sense, in the sense in Call of Cthulhu, I think it's probably something quite different. It is almost, um, in a way, almost an oxymoron. If you don't know what it is, how can you be afraid of it? I guess part of it comes down to perhaps that fear of death. Let's go back to the whole idea of predation. So if there is something that's out there in the darkness that is hunting you, if you can just hear it, if you get hints of it, if you know it's out there, that is, I think, probably more terrifying than actually seeing it. And we certainly encounter that in horror films. There, There is something deflating about that moment you see the monster. Yeah, I think for me this is... This is a key fear, fear of the unknown, but it's not like I'm just fearful of something in the next room with no evidence there's anything there. You know, I can hear it making a weird noise or I can hear it scratching at the door, but I don't know what it is. Then it's a fear. So I think there's got to be a shadow on the wall, a noise or or something or even a smell or or something that starts your imagination rolling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if it's dark and you're alone and it's at night, and there's something weird, then you can start to get scared of that. But if you know what it is, if you know it's just the cat, as we see in like Alien or whatever, then you know it dispels the fear because suddenly you know what it is. 
And so what do you say in that case then that that fear of the unknown is sort of um, almost like a complication or an additional layer that you place upon any of those other universal fears? I think so, yeah. I think all those things, I don't quantify them in my mind, but all those things are, you know, myriad possibilities of things that might be out there to get you or do something to you or something horrible. You know, like I said, I don't really quantify it. It's just because it could be anything. So however good your imagination is, think of the worst thing and it could be, you know, just outside the door. Yeah, or, or in general terms, I mean, you know, going back to that idea of mutilation, I mean, let's say that you get really bad sunburn and your skin starts peeling, uh, you know, then there's nothing scary about that. But if your skin starts peeling and you've got no idea why it's happening, you haven't been out in the sunshine, that suddenly becomes terrifying. You know, there may be a perfectly you know, manageable way of dealing with it. It may have a you know, fairly simple and benign medical explanation, but while it's happening, you know, while your body is changing in that, that you know, scary way, I imagine the fact that the causes of it are unknown would make it all the scarier. Then that also pigeonholes quite neatly into mutilation as well, mm. that specific example. So when we're operating as, as keepers or writers, I mean, how much do we personally draw upon the things that scare us? I mean, how much do we put our own fears into what we write? I think I'm either using things that are stereotypically scary, you know, like weird leggy insectoid monsters, or a combination of that. And if I sort of start hitting on something that I personally find a bit scary, then, yeah, I, I guess I would elaborate on that. So can you think of any examples? I mean, are, are there any things that, you know, you personally find frightening that you, you don't think are, you know, quite as universal that you, you, you draw upon as plot elements? Either of you? I'm drawing a blank because it's n- it honestly never really occurred to me to use my own fear is something mm. i'd write about no it's, i mean it's interesting it's not something that i necessarily do consciously either and you know in the interview i did with nathan ballingrod a while back it was something i asked him about as well it seems to be something that a lot of you know people who write horror do unconsciously but I, a few times i've tried doing it consciously but i i find it much harder well i think by default you're almost doing it because if you're trying to write something that's scary you've got to gauge is this scary and whether you find it scary or not is going to be part of your gauge i would have thought but i let's say for example that you find clowns frightening as do all right thinking people then you know do, do you sort of think right okay clowns are scary let's write something about a scary clown i don't think <laughs> i've ever done anything like that yeah i've never really thought of it in terms of scare factor i just write about the things that interest me rather than necessarily scare me but the fact that you're writing horror you know, means that there's got to be that sort of frisson of fear in there somewhere. Hmm. Yeah, I just, I'd honestly never approached it from a fear aspect. I build it from atmosphere, hmm. but never from fear. Well, and our friend Kiri uh, used to go around at conventions asking his players you know, what frightened them. It was a kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of thing to yes. do, I think. But it would uh, get out, and I was going to say his phone, but actually I think it was a palm pilot. Yeah, it did kind of note down, you know, this person, spiders, this person, you know, I don't know, clowns or whatever. And actually that did inspire a scenario for him. So I think yeah. he got quite a few people saying clowns and that inspired him to write Coulorophobia, a scenario. So, um, yeah, he kind of fed off that. But I don't, I can't talk about his process of writing scenarios. But if it were me, then I'd figure, okay, well, clowns, there's a bunch of people that don't like clowns. How can I make that scary? And then I'd sort of think to myself, well... 
what would scare me about them and try and elaborate on that. You know, one thing that would actually scare me from that, mm. a guy going around ask you, what scares you? Well, yeah, that's kind <laughs> yes. of scary in itself. <laughs> there's, there's the answer to it. If Kiri ever does that to it, the answer is you, Kiri. You scare me. <laughs> so rather than Jehovah's Witnesses coming around to your door, it's a bunch of people. Can we have a word with you for a moment, sir? Yes. What scares you? Gets out clipboard. <laughs> that, that is actually a really good opening to it a is. scenario or a story, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, there must be things that you've been able to identify, you know, perhaps in retrospect as things that scare you, that, that you've put in that, you know, perhaps you weren't consciously sort of seeking out your own fears. I mean, you know, for example, one thing that, you know, certainly scared me a lot when I was younger was basically, you know, going back to that idea of people changing, people becoming irrational and so on. I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, my mother was an alcoholic and she had a real Jekyll and Hyde personality when I was young. I mean, when she was drinking, she sometimes became downright psychotic in her delusions. She'd accuse me of doing things I hadn't done or um, invented, you know, bizarre things that might have happened. She became, you know, really convinced at some point that I'd been sexually abused at school and kept trying to convince me of the fact. Um, a lot of that stayed with me. And I think, you know, I, I still find myself in scenarios putting in a lot of irrational, delusional uh, NPCs who will behave in, you know, really upsetting ways with the mm. uh, with the player characters for and and i think a lot of it comes down to that fear yeah i think it's ups, both upsetting and frightening that either someone we love might end up that way or that we ourselves might end up you know in a state of delusion or dementia uh, and kind of loss of control of our faculties that's frightening because it's a it's either a loss of self or it's a loss of someone that you know but I guess what I'm interested in is how much, you know, this kind of stuff informs what we do at the game table or what we do when we're preparing a scenario and what kind of advice, you know, that means we can offer to our listeners in terms of what that process actually involves. Mm. You know, I, I think identifying a lot of those fears, uh, you know, means that you can probably get to own them to some extent and, you know, reinterpret them in ways and... And, you know, perhaps, you know, turn them into tools that you can use. A very similar, you know, example to that I, I, I find in the uh, the writings of Ramsey Campbell. So, you know, Ra Ramsey Campbell's mother, I believe, from interviews um, with him was uh, schizophrenic. His books are absolutely filled with people who, you know, behave you know, in psychotic ways or, or perhaps jump to the worst possible conclusions about what the protagonists are doing. You end up with these these spirals of misunderstandings and rumours spreading and so on that end up being really quite nightmarish. Mm. And yeah, I, I I found myself wondering when I was reading those books how much of this you know, almost acted as therapy for him as he was you know perhaps getting some of these things out of his system. I mean, yeah, you know, are there any things like that that you find yourselves doing in in your work? Sorry, Scott, this might not be answering the question you just asked, but you just put me my mm. mind on 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 another track of um, something that i experienced um when i worked in the psychiatric department and it was common for people to hear voices and you know when i'd been ill and had flu and a fever you know you you get auditory or visual hallucinations mm. so i've kind of experienced a little tiny bit of that but the thought that these people were hearing voices out of their control saying things to them unpleasant things mocking things 
really frightening that you know yeah. and these you know these were people just like me with degrees or whatever and, and they're just you know just regular people and they, they've been afflicted by that it's really both sad and but really frightening that that could start to happen to me and i got quite frightened of that one stage and particularly when i was with a guy in the in the pottery room um a guy that i'd formed quite a, a good relationship with and i think you know he was working on the pottery wheel and i was chatting with him and he just experienced like a full-blown kind of psychotic attack and just started hearing voices and he was just absolutely like terrified and sort oh, of screaming yeah. and and we took him into another room and i want some of the psychiatric nurses and you know i left and went back to my room but it was it was kind of terrifying that that could happen and you've got you there's nothing you can do if you're yeah. that person um yeah your mind just turns on you yeah and that that internal loss of control yeah just uh you know terrifying so so when you when you encounter something like that or you know when something like that frightens you to that degree do you find that you know it's something that that informs you know your your gming something that informs your your writing yeah definitely yeah i mean is is that something you've consciously done okay well i think i'd like to get into then how Mm. this stuff informs my gming yeah so i think all this stuff we've talked about so far isn't what makes the game scary to me. I think a lot of this is what we've talked about so far is I liken it to comedy. Um, You know, what makes something funny? We could find an article and go through all the things that makes a joke funny. You wouldn't be able to make a joke after reading all that stuff. If you're a comedian already looking at that theory, it might help you to some degree. But, you know, give that to Joe Bloggs. They're not going to start writing fantastic jokes, I don't think. No, I think, you know, tools like this are more useful for understanding what's going on rather than uh, as, a, as a map for getting there. So it seems like, to me, all this stuff is like putting fertiliser on your garden, you know, putting manure on the garden. It, it makes it ripe for things to grow and for, for frightening and horrible things to kind of sprout up. But you can put all that stuff down but unless you do some work and cultivate it nothing's actually going to happen so when you when, when you say do some work what, what, what are you talking about i'm talking about when i've seen stand-up comedians do comedy they are interacting well they're both interacting with the audience but and they're paying 100 percent attention to what's going on and mm. responding to it at lightning speed with wit and humor and things i couldn't possibly start to do and making and making comedy out of various things and i feel those things aren't scripted and i feel when i'm running a horror game you've kind of got to be sensitive to what's going on and what the players are saying and try and sort of develop some horror in the situation in the moment partly by making that connection with the other person i think and for me it's about sort of making that connection with the other person and almost in the moment thinking what about this situation do I find a bit scary and trying to feel that mm. fear myself and then trying to emote it and make a connection with the other person. And I asked um, a couple of people who had fed back to me that they'd found games that I'd been in scary. And I asked them, what was it about the game that you found scary? So one friend of ours, Will, said uh, in a game 
I'd run a concrete cow. He said, it, I think it was partly the build-up. Uh, a lot of 70s and 80s horror does it well. Not showing the bad guy, hinting at something wrong, building the suspense. Uh, nothing gives people a sense of fear more than something that instantly causes death. And we, we've kind of argued against mm. that, but that was his point, and that was what he sort of felt uh, well, was no, disturbing. I, what I was saying wasn't that... It's certainly scary thinking that death can happen at any moment. What's not scary is when it does. Right. Okay, yeah, okay. We are on the same page then. Yeah. Then you, you, you've had a, an email from Noah Lloyd who was talking about a game that you played together at Necronomicon that you, you GM'd for him. Mm. And he says, um, I remember that game fairly well because I think it was the only Call of Cthulhu game I've been in that actually caused fear, or at least something close to it. And while I could identify a few things in the scenario that hit me personally, claustrophobia, being trapped on a vessel, sharks... I don't think it was these elements that actually did it. Rather, it was a GMing technique uh, that you used that I've since tried to adopt. Your descriptions around climactic scenes were based on character internalities rather than external scenes. You would look us dead in the eye and ask rhetorical questions. Is that your wife you see here? Or posit new horrific facts about our character's personal world. I wish I could remember precisely how you framed the death of that first character, which I remember was by drowning in his bed, but it was the however you phrase things that really built upon the dread of the situation. I've got to say, whenever a player tells me afterwards that they found the game scary, then I feel like that's a feather in my cap. I feel I've done a good job because it's a horror game. Mm. So I always take great heart from that. I feel like, okay, well, I guess I'm doing the right thing. I think, well, we've all been there, I'm sure, yeah. Somebody said, oh, we had nightmares after that game yeah. or whatever. And as long as it's like, like you know, wasn't, the person wasn't traumatized by it or seriously affected in, so, in, ne- in some negative way, we don't want that. But, you know, if they've enjoyed being scared by it, like, like we would with a horror film, then I think, you know, that's, that's great. But I was interested in what Noah said about what I did, because I, I wouldn't have been able to pinpoint that myself. Mm. Um, no, it's something I've, I've noticed you doing certainly um and it's probably something i do as well i think that it is asking those those open-ended those leading questions you know sort of prompting the players to use their imagination to to buy in a bit more uh, to what's going on and i think that whole idea of buy-in is is crucial to the idea of horror games because it's a bit like what i was saying about the thing at the door so i can as gm i can say oh you can hear some scratching at the door and you're like, uh, well, okay, I'll go and see what it is. But if I say you can hear some scratching at the door, what do you think it is? Because uh, your cat's sat down there by the radiator. What, yes. what is it? Then yeah. it, it starts to, you know, inspire some creativity on the thought on the part of the player. And I think if you can get their imagination going, like you said, Scott, then I think imagination is perhaps our worst enemy when it comes to fear. I mean that actually is that a point? Imagination is a, is a, is an enemy in that way because if you can imagine being mutilated, if you can imagine what's going to happen to you when this thing catches you, if you can imagine this awful disease spreading throughout your body, if you can imagine you know losing your mind and hearing voices, then that makes it frightening. Yeah, I I think that is absolutely essential to this, and yeah, I I think I think horror doesn't work without it. But it it has to be the player wanting to buy into that. I mean, I, I'm sure we've also all also had the experience of you know players at the opposite end of that, where even if you try to draw them in, they've perhaps because of bad gaming experiences, or perhaps because they don't like being scared, that they just sort of put up emotional armor to that, and it's sort of yeah, okay, yeah, uh, and and you're trying to 
draw them into you know imagining yeah. these things and it's sort of well yeah okay well yeah, i don't care i just open the door yeah it's all about moving on quickly yeah but i'm thinking actually of experiences where i have been genuinely terrified i think there is one that could potentially have influenced at least a couple of moments because i was thinking doing on a similar line going back through thinking when have people at game table said that something in particular is has been scary in a game i've run and i found two examples that really came to mind and they both followed a similar kind of template and the first instance was it was a dinner party it was a costumed affair lots of people uh, dressed up in various different characters from Edgar Allan Poe stories and I had that the butler was walking around as the Red Death and described him yeah, the various uh, servants are coming in bringing uh, food to the dinner table and such and you just so happen to see the butler walk across the doorway uh, at the end of the room and then about 10 seconds later, he walks past again, going the same direction. And another one uh, being where people turn up at a house. Uh, one of them has seen something weird in a well at the back of the house. So it takes the host out there to say, look, what, something's down here. And he goes over there, has a look, and probably starts to berate the, uh, the PC. I've extended the hand of friendship to you, and you come out here and start making, and then midway through the sentence, pull him down into the well by something coming up behind him and then dragging him back down. Mm. And the PC's saying, well, should we, should we make a sand check for that? Saying, no, but you can make a sand check for the fact that as soon as his body goes in the well and you hear the splash, he comes out the front door and says, is everything okay? I thought I heard a noise. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's that moment where something seemingly mundane, I like to turn it on its head and make it yeah. something that it's not. And that suddenly that has an implication itself that then suddenly gets that imagination running that, shit, what else have I seen that may not be real? Or what, um, what else is here that's not what it seems? That comes from um, actually the trip I took over to the States uh, when I went to propose to TIFF, that uh, we stayed in a Indian reservation. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this on the podcast before uh, or not. Yeah, no, you but, mentioned the proposal. I don't think you've mentioned the reservation. Ah, right. Um, we <laughs> I like the fact that your engagement was the scariest moment in your life. <laughs> <laughs> we could all relate to that. Will, will you marry me? Roll San. Ah! <laughs> well, that's a D100 gone right there. <laughs> No, this was a few days before, and Tiff decided to take us to a place where um, she'd gone there on her holidays growing up, and it was a place that she uh, she really liked. It's the um, Cherokee Reservation at the um, west end of the of North Carolina, so up in the Smoky Mountains. We decided, yep, we'd uh, spend a few days there. Went to an Indian casino, won a five hundred five dollar pot on an ace high flush on um, on the river. I was a really happy man. Um, so we decided that that paid for everything. So we got a hotel room. Um, to stay rather than a B and B or any, um, anything else, mainly because there's hardly any place to stay at the time. Um, this holiday in right at the end of the road, away from everything else around it, so it was a bit isolated. Got back to the hotel, hotel room on a bit of a high. You think, yeah, this is great, but we've had a hell of a long day. It's just hit the sack. And I wake up, must be middle of the night, and see Tiff stood at the end uh, end of the bed. Obviously, having got up, that's probably what roused me was her moving. Got long hair going down her back and heading towards the, then headed towards the bathroom. I think, perfect, I've got the whole bed to myself. Spread out and hit something <laughs> over on my right and find that Tiff's still in the bed. Wow. And I was frozen with fear for the best part of half an hour before I think exhaustion just finally made me fall asleep again, thinking who the fuck was at the end of the bed and who, who is in my bathroom. And it's, again, that moment of turning something on its head with a revelation. I mean, you, you didn't go and look in the bathroom? Hell no! <laughs> 
Oh! I kicked in the bed covering the pillows over my head. Oh, so, the thing over my head. Yeah. So when a few moments ago you said that you know, you'd, you'd react to horrific situations by falling asleep, you weren't joking. No. <laughs> <laughs> So that, that case just took a little longer than I hoped. <laughs> I'm going to have to remember this as an involuntary re- reaction. Yeah. Uh, you failed your sand, you fall asleep. <laughs> so, well, you suddenly develop narcolepsy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That, I mean, how can you account for that then? Well, can well, you? Tiff went, Tiff went down the next, night, uh, the next morning to the front desk yeah. and said, you got any stories about this place being haunted? Of course, the front desk is like, nah. Well, you have now. Yeah. <laughs> and promptly went up and told him about it. Wow. Oh, God. But yeah, there's, that's the only explanation I can pin it down to, unless someone come into the room in the middle of the night and decided to freak us out, but didn't hear the door go, didn't hear it close, and nothing was missing. So pro- closest thing I can put to seeing a ghost. Yeah, that's a great creepy mm. story, I think. And the, I mean, I think that's great because it's like you see it and you know what it is, perfectly normal, and then something happens. That, that recontextualises it. Yeah, know. and it's that cognitive dissonance that you described with the you know the guy going down the well. Oh, okay, that's kind of frightening because some the monster in the well has pulled him down or somebody's pulled him down. But it's not necessarily going to frighten me. But then when the per- same person comes out of the hotel, it's like, whoa, what the fuck? And it's that, <laughs> I think... You know, is that we talked about that before? That what the fuck moment in Call of Cthulhu yeah. is often that sort of reaction of having the rug pulled out from under mm. you. So that's what you experience when you're in bed and you reach over and Tiff is next to you, but you've just seen her go into the bathroom. It's like, yeah. what the fuck is going on here? My mind can't process this because there's two things that can't both be true at the same time. It was a degree of assumption as well, because I only mm. saw the figure from the back. I just saw the long hair and thought, oh, it's, it's obviously Tiff, but yeah. never saw the face. But I think from uh, a gaming point of view and from a narration point of view, what makes that effective is doing it in a very almost matter-of-fact way. So, mm. you know, if, if that were a game, it would sort of be, oh, yeah, you, you sort of see Tiff get up and go to the bathroom. And, you know, perhaps, you know, throw in a bit more physical description, you know, but, you know, describe the hair. But it is just such a matter-of-fact thing that, you know, it's not until you get the larger context that, you know, it really becomes frightening. On our Discord server the other day, there was one of the, uh, one of the folks there, and I can't remember who it was, so apologies, who came up with a great example, which was, you take a look at the church, you know, the square church, there are five spires, one in each corner. Mm. And it's, uh, how does that work? Oh, yeah, okay, roll sand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I live for moments like that. That that is my by far my favourite GM technique is that kind of deadpan delivery, yeah. and then the sudden penny drop on people's faces. So I think those are cool ideas that you can script. You know, if you can think of really clever little scary moments like that, you can script them in advance and use them. Sometimes they're going to work better than others. You know, sometimes it's going to trigger that reaction in the person where they you know they they really get into it and and really feel it and other times maybe it's not going to hit the mark but you know you can script it but i mean there are all sorts of different ways of of having fear in games so you know that is you know as you described the what the fuck moment that that feeling of disorientation there are other ways of perhaps building that up I mean, one technique that, that I've used uh, a number of times, which I think works, I guess I, I'd call it almost saturation, 
where uh, yeah, I, I describe a scene and I describe it with lots of fairly quick narration, just layering on details, you know, some of which are mundane, some of which are horrible, and just sort of accelerate the pace and accelerate the pace and just sort of make the players feel almost overwhelmed and try to, you know, try to almost make them feel, you know, perhaps slightly panicky about, you know, the amount of uh, you know, information that's being thrown at them and then just all of a sudden stop and say, right, what do you do? Yeah, I've done, I've done similar in... Um in cult thinking about it, which is another one where I had someone got a jaw drop and going, what uh, was a reaction at the table? Mm-hmm. Describing an area, but then uh, midway through, not leaving you know, the juicy detail to the end, but saying, oh, yeah, there's various, uh, what looks to be little shrines, the kind of things you find when someone's died on the roadside, the kind of fair, yeah, there's pictures, there's little dolls, there's cuddly toys, there's a beating human heart, there's a pair of old shoes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, just uh, that one random war. Well, I mean, the, the example I was thinking of was perhaps subtly different to that, which perhaps involves, you know, repeated details. For example, I used it at the start of... Uh, there's a scenario I run called uh, We Had Faces. The player characters all wake up in a darkened space. Uh, you know, a classic horror movie opening. And, you know, they know something's wrong, but they don't quite know what's going on. And so I'm sort of describing the the location and describing the reactions of an NPC who won't stop screaming and sobbing and describing, you know, weird things like faces looking down at them from the wall and describing the darkness and describing the way they feel wrong and their faces hurt and this woman won't stop screaming at why she's sobbing and why she calling you that name and the faces won't stop looking at you from the wall and, and, and you know, that, that, the, the pain and you put your hand up to your face and your face feels rough and that, that woman, she just won't stop screaming. Why shouldn't she stop screaming? Right, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, that, that sudden change, I think you can also... It's very, you know, classic thing where you see used in loads of films and can just be, you know, referred to as the jump scare. Um, but the just something as simple as banging your hand on the table yes. or something like that that just sort of jolts people a little bit, makes them jump or shaking the table. You know, something like, you know, I can remember a game where we were on an aeroplane and the GM shook the table. It shouldn't really be... I don't... That doesn't really sound scary at all. But when he did it and he was describing it, it did make it feel like you were on the plane and it was shaking. It's kind of weird. but oh, Especially it, if you're not expecting it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was kind of quite scary. Um, and I remember one game I ran when we were students back in Birmingham and uh, some of our friends had gone out to the pub and we would just get into like a really scary bit and they burst in the front door. <laughs> Everybody just jumped out oh, of their skins. It was perfect timing. It was great. Uh, I've had the reverse uh, where it wasn't someone that came through the door um, but I, I think it was for conception or contingency maybe one of the first years that contingency ran down at Sandy Balls um, it was a new uh, lodge so I wasn't totally familiar with the area and I could have sworn that someone had walked up the steps outside and was coming up to the front door so I just paused mid-game and said hang on a sec I'll just see who's at the door Got up, walked out, uh, well, not walked out, went over to the other end of the room, opened the door up and went, hang on, there's no one here. Mm. Okay, I shrugged myself thinking, oh, I must be hearing things, because my hearing isn't great at the best of times anyway. And sat back down, and a couple of the other players are like, you really know how to freak people out, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I just thought I heard someone come to the door. But, I mean, yeah, that whole idea of jump scares, it doesn't even have to be a loud noise. I, I, I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but I think the single most effective jump I ever got out of a player in a game didn't involve any noise. It was a game of Dead of Night I was running. The players were all playing kids who uh, were poking around this old, disused warehouse. 
and you know it was all abandoned there were you know it was all dark and at some point they you know they they go up to this window in an office it's a bit too high for them to reach because they're, they're getting to it from the outside. And so one of them is standing on a crate and trying to get up and, and clearing the dust away from the window and it's all dark inside. You know, I, I'm, I'm describing all this and then, you know, I just say to the player who's doing all this and suddenly at the window there's a face and at that point, because I was jamming while standing up, I just leaned over and went pretty much nose to nose with him and he jumped out of his seat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the thing, isn't it? That could be to maybe half the people, it wouldn't scare them at all. They'd just yeah. be, you know, they wouldn't necessarily get a reaction to that. But sometimes you hit it. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a bit like what I was we were saying with it being a sort of primal thing. Well, and also the fact that moments like that can generally only happen spontaneously. It's not mm. something you can script into a scenario. Yeah, yeah. It's learning how to read the players. And I, you know, I know, for example, there were certain players I could never have done that with, either because mm. they wouldn't have found it scary or because they would have felt it was a violation or of their personal space. The yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some yeah. people would have done. Exactly. Involuntarily so, almost. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, it's something you've got to be very careful with. Yeah. There's one thing especially that that relies on a hell of a lot. You can't really do that in a convention space where you've got about 15 other tables around you or there's multiple yeah. games running in the same space. Your environment will help a hell of a lot. Um, particularly thinking again back to the first uh, the first time we met, actually, Scott. Cult. Oh, Dark, yes. candlelight, incense burning, creepy <laughs> yes. as shit music playing in the background. That was great. <laughs> it's funny how you say the first time we met. It was, you know, it was dim light, candles burning and so on. That could be a romantic evening. <laughs> and also I think, you know, there is this, I mean, it sounds a bit weird, but like getting kind of sexually aroused is an involuntary thing mm. almost. You don't really necessarily quite know what's going to work for you. Yeah. And it's the same thing. You don't quite know what's going to scare you. Yeah, I think but it's that stereotypical thing of, of dim lighting, I think helping the imagination. And I think when you are in a big hall in daylight... I mean, you can maybe get scared, but, you know, it's like watching a horror film with the curtains open and the sun streaming in. Certainly, I can see I could still maybe get scared, but it's a lot harder. It's a lot easier when it's dark. There's nobody else in the house. And, you know, or if you're role-playing, you know, if you've just got candlelight or dim lighting and it's kind of quiet and, you know, there are maybe cars going past outside, but... Music helps a hell of a lot as well, even mm. if it's only like mood music or background noise, something that helps, again, fill that void outside of the game. Mm. Yeah, it makes you feel isolated from the rest of the world. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah I, actually, I'm thinking of, um, not that it's a horror game, but um, I know Paul and I have played this. I can't remember if you have. There's um, a, an indie role-playing game called Polaris. No, I've not played it. Um, where you're basically playing doomed knights uh, at the end of the world. But it does something that I think is very interesting, which you know, is is perhaps more something more RPGs could could benefit from, which is this idea of starting the game with a little ritual to sort of actually designate, you know, right, we are now in the game space. Hmm. And so it starts with a ritual phrase, and you light a candle, and you say this ritual phrase. I can't remember what it is. It's something like, you know, once upon a time at the end of the world, there were, you know, these knights. Yeah. And from that moment onwards, you're in the game. It's sort of wiping away the rest of the world. And it reminds me of my days of doing ritual magic. You know, the idea that there are certain rituals that you do in order to cleanse or prepare your ritual space. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, the, the whole idea of those things is they get you into the right mindset for doing magic. And these little rituals, you know, remind people that they're playing games, it's time to put away their phones, it's, it's time to stop talking about what they saw on TV last week, and now we're in game space. But, I mean, this whole idea of atmosphere, I mean, a big part of that is the, the whole idea of trying to build a sense of creeping dread. I mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, shocks, we talked a bit about disorientation, but I think a big part of creating a sense of fear in a game is this sense of dread or anticipation. I mean, maybe they're two subtly different things. Mm. But are, are there any particular techniques that you use to, to try to create that, 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 that more subtle, slow-burn sense of fear? Yeah, that, that's where I, I generally tend to focus more on is uh, probably escalation of that, that starts off with everything seeming mundane, but then slowly creep things in and then a few more and a few more just layer and build upon it and build upon it to the point we get towards it can't go any higher, so it has to be a climax. But are, are there any specific things you do in order to, to build that, that emotion? Nothing I can pin down, I think, but it's definitely an intention that's there. I think it probably works differently given the scenario in question, because context is different, story is different. Mm. But I try not to use the same structure again and again in terms of the story or plot of what's happening. But the overall intention, the structure there is the same. How about you, Paul? Yeah, I think, it, like Matt says, it very much depends on the scenario. So some of them start with an immediate res thing where it's kind of high action and then a, perhaps followed by a slower burn. Some of them just start with a slow burn. So there's no kind of generalizing in that i don't think for me yeah i mean i i think there are a few things specifically you can do i mean one is if you think about the way a lot of horror films work you you tend to get say at tense moments you know very tight close-ups of of characters and restrictions on what the camera will let you see so you know that there are bad things happening just outside the camera frame or potentially happening outside perhaps the uh the protagonist or the character on the screen is not able to actually see these things it's it's this whole idea of sort of tailoring your description, um, tailoring what it is that you're presenting to the players, and perhaps leaving out key details, you know, you know, not, say, describing an entire area, but just describing the bits that they can see, or, you know, little hints of what they can hear and not giving them context, and just building up, you know, that, that fear of the unknown. Mm. Yeah, and I think the other thing that sort of really helps with building up that sense of dread one is not having the release of laughter. Well, not just having the release of laughter, not having the release of action. It's almost like, you know, as we've talked about many times before, with comedy, the fact that horror is all about building up and releasing tension. You know, as soon as you release that tension, whether it's in an action scene or a bit of gore or whatever, then it diffuses the tension you've been building up. But if you just kind of slowly build up a creeping sense of wrongness and, and build on that and build on that and, and don't have any release, yeah, I think that sustains a sense of dread. It's a very hard thing to pull off because, you know, particularly in RPGs, you will always get that one person, and I guess very often it's me, who at some point will make an inappropriate joke and just kill the whole atmosphere. Mm. But if you can avoid that, if you can, you know, if you can get people to buy into that creeping sense of dread, then, yeah, I, th I think that, that can really work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Well, once again, it is that time when we would like to say thank you. And we would like to thank uh, everyone who listens to the podcast. We would like to thank everyone who backs the podcast. And we have a number of new people to thank in, in various ways. Yes, beginning at the $1 level, we have a big thanks going out to Ethan Doherty. Oh, thank you very much, Ethan. Hey, thank you, Ethan. And thank you very much to Jonathan Sheehan. Indeed, thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. And a usual caveat here, because I'm probably going to screw this up right royally. Um, our thanks go out as well to Jeppe Abilskov. So I really hope I've got that somewhere near right. But yeah, thank you very much, Jeppe. Thank you, Jeppe. Yes, thank you very much, Jeppe. And if we have completely mangled your name, please let us know and we will thank you again correctly using the pronunciation that we should have used in the first place. And moving up to the $3 level, we have a thanks and cheers going out to Jason Bagel. Thank you very much and cheers, Jason. Indeed, cheers, Jason. And thank you and cheers go out to Christian Kinman. Indeed, cheers, Christian. Cheers, Christian. And our thanks and our cheers also go out to the, the name we've been given here, Reborn Viking. So, Mr. Viking or Mrs. Viking or Reborn. Hey, cheers. I think Reborn to their friends. Yes. So, so thank you and cheers, Reborn. Cheers, Reborn. <laughs> And last on our list, with the very conventional name of Naked in My Basement Making Pipe Bombs, perhaps some homage to uh, Hawkwind. <laughs> I'm an what? urban gorilla building bombs in my cellar. But what, what else would you be doing down there? Cheers. <laughs> well, well, thank you and cheers, Naked. Hey, cheers, Naked. <laughs> I'm not sure it works as a first name, but okay. Well, maybe Naked In, that's the, uh, that's yeah. the first name. Yeah. And now we move on to the part you've all been dreading, because we have a new $5 backer to thank. And do you know what this means? That's the whole reason why we did an episode on making stuff scary. Yeah, yes, we are going to terrify you with our singing prowess, or, or lack thereof. We have a, a song of thanks to offer to Joe Elliott, who I, I'm, I'm assuming probably isn't the singer from Def Leppard, but if you are, please, please let us know. Hey, give us a shout out on Planet Rock, you do a show there. Thank you very much, Joe. Rock on. Don't know why I said that. Cut that out. social media chucky t076 in the u.s left us a lovely review on itunes freaking great podcast i love that as a title <laughs> that's a good one especially with an exclamation mark it always makes it come alive excellent job boys i've just finished the entire backlog wow that is a heroic undertaking <laughs> now roll d uh, d10 d100 san and i've enjoyed every show the three of you have produced I'd recommend this podcast to any GM of any system. These guys are walking, talking gold. Oh, I feel like a million bucks now. <laughs> Their approach to GMing is intelligent, thoughtful, and humorous. I can't recommend the show enough. Thank you for everything you do on and off air, and look forward to many more shows. 
Oh, the, thank you very much, Chucky. I mean, that is absolutely lovely of you to say so. And and we really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you very much, Chucky. And if anybody else wants to leave us a review anywhere, any place, please do let us know and we'll uh, read it out on the show. And we had some great feedback on the second of our episodes about The King in Yellow. Over on our Discord server, Daniel Carroll said, The way you guys were describing the play, it sounded a little like a hard drug. The temptation of being introduced to it, the compulsion to keep going once started, the madness of too much, like that girl who gouged both of her eyes out, and of course the banning by authorities. I can get the drug parallel. I can stop putting the King in Yellow in any scenario I want at any time I like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's got that kind of addictive quality that's, uh, and it's you know looked down upon by society and uh, the authorities. So yeah, and and you can overdose on it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I, I like that parallel. And Chris Glue over on Blasphemous Tome says, Another great episode. Speaking of how media has embraced elements of the Carcosa mythos, it may be worth mentioning that there's a 1998 current 93 album called Soft Black Stars, re-released in 2005. As well as the obvious link in the album title, it's quite an eerie piece of work all round. Songs with titles like The Signs in the Stars, Chewing on Shadows, and Whilst the Night Rejoices, Profound and Still. I'm not sure if David Tibet has ever mentioned if there is a direct link between their work and Chambers's, but the imagery seems to have lots of parallels. Well, I don't think that's an accident. I mean, the Black Stars bit seems to be very much a reference. And I know David Tibet is a, a huge weird fiction fan. I mean, he's recorded with Thomas Ligotti for a start. I went to a talk, uh, or rather an event, a couple of years back, which was uh, for the centenary of uh, Robert Aikman's birth. And one of the speakers there was Ray Russell, who runs Tartarus Press. And he made the point that um, it was actually David Tibet, who's a friend of his, who's the singer-songwriter behind Current 93, who introduced him to Arthur Macon, for example, um, and convinced him to bring Macon's stuff back into print, and who introduced him to Robert Aikman. And uh, yeah, so Tibet is responsible, really, for Aikman's revival in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I think the fact that he's riffing on Chambers here is certainly not a coincidence. And if you want some scary music to play in the background of your games, then Current 93 is one place to start. Yeah, I mean, particularly their early stuff if you're looking for kind of scary, creepy stuff. Because they started out as sort of an industrial band, or at least as, as someone on the, you know, the penumbra of the, the industrial movement. But then it, it morphed into what was referred to as apocalyptic folk. And the, their latest stuff is, is more folky, but still creepy as fuck. It strikes me, actually, Scott, you should put together a playlist on Spotify for creepy background music oh, for your yeah. games. Because like that stuff you used in Cult, which was like Current 93 and various other and Coil, Coil and, and stuff like that. SBK and, um, yeah. You know, that'd be good. Because yeah. I think you probably need a Spotify account. Though. I don't know if you've got you, one. You but, I, I do, yes. Yeah. And as we're on Spotify as well, listeners, then, uh, you know, you can link the two up maybe. And back on Discord, um, Evelyn Moreau says, I would love to craft a game about collectively attributing new meaning to the building blocks of The King in Yellow, each playthrough producing a new mythology. 
I, I don't know whether Evelyn particularly ch- chose to say love to craft there, but I thought it was a, a great turn of <laughs> oh, phrase. Oh, very good. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic idea. I, I, I mean, coincidentally, I recently played in Asylum with Evelyn GMing, and uh, she, she did a fantastic job of really bringing the creepiness of, of the King and Yellow to the forefront and the whole Carcosa thing. If you fancy doing something like that, Evelyn, I, yeah, I would love to play it someday. I was chatting with some of our listeners on the Discord server recently, and <laughs> someone, um, I can't remember who it was, was surprised to hear that we had merchandise. I mentioned something about you know the, uh, our T-shirt designs. And they said, well, why do you never mention the fact that you've got merchandise on the podcast? It's on and- the back of our blasphemous tomes each issue. How <laughs> <laughs> lovely advert I put together. Yeah, but we we just we just keep forgetting to mention it. So if you go to blasphemoustomes.com, there is actually a link on the website there which will take you to our Redbubble store in which you can find a couple of different designs. Uh, do, you, do you want to explain what they are, Paul? Yeah, there's the When a Tracked Fish Goes Wrong design and there's the Good Friends of Jackson Elias design, both yeah. drawn by our good friend John Ossaway. Uh, and they're available on, you know, all the Redbubble stuff, like T-shirts, bags, books... Mugs, thongs, yeah, probably not thongs. Um, pillows. So, so if there's someone in your life you want to smother, you can smother them with the good friends of Jackson Elias pillow. All while giggling at what happens when the track fish goes wrong. Mm. And now to wrap up, what are our final thoughts about making Cthulhu scary? Do we think, for a start, that RPGs are ever genuinely scary? Yeah, there's been a few moments where I've generally got uh, been afraid. Yeah, it all depends on, as I've said this before, but I think the atmosphere plays a hell of a big part to it. But then also it's a very personal experience of what you find scary. It may not be everyone at the table is quaking in fear in their boots or suddenly jumps at that one scare that gets thrown at them. But yeah, I think on a personal level it can be very scary indeed if you hit the right buttons. Yeah, I agree, Matt. Yeah, it, it can definitely be scary because I've had people tell me it's scary and I've been scared once or twice. But I think it's not as easy to make it as scary as a film because with a film you're just a passive observer you can't do anything to change it and you can't you know nobody in the film is going to break the mood by you know looking at their phone or talking about what they saw on tv last night so when you've got a group it's you know it's good if you're all on the same page and you're all sort of driving towards that then i think it's achievable to make it scary i'm I'm intrigued by the idea of how far you can go with trying to make a game scary now i've seen a number of discussions online particularly on the call of cthulhu facebook group recently where it started out i think with discussions about uh, the X card, which we've mentioned on the podcast before, you know, the simple idea being that you have this card marked with an X that either everyone has one of or there's one on the table. And if someone at any stage finds that the game is going somewhere that they are really deeply uncomfortable with, they can, without any explanation, just point at the X. And then whoever's narrating, usually the GM, you know, knows that this is a signal to change tack and perhaps avoid what it is that they were going for. And I think this is a this is a, a very good tool to have there. I think the chances of using it, you know, it probably gets used very, very rarely. But I think it's good to have there as a way of people not having to voice their their concern, but being able to do it just by a, an easy method like that. 
But what's interesting is that I've seen a lot of kickback against it on forums, particularly on on the Call of Cthulhu Facebook group, with people saying, if you are the kind of person who gets upset at things, if you are the kind of person who doesn't want lines crossed, why are you even playing a horror RPG in the first place? And you certainly have no place at my gaming table. Either I think they're not quite appreciating the use of it, um, so they're thinking, well, I do want to scare people and I don't want people pointing at it just because they think things are a bit freaky and a bit scary because that's the point of the game and mm. I can get on board with that. Or they think that genuinely upsetting people is a good objective, in which case, you know, fuck them. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting thing to me, this idea of, of when that line is crossed. Because I mean, you, you talked about, for example, Kiri going around with his, his notebook and taking notes of what scare people. And, you know, I, I think, yeah, I, that's a, really a double-edged sword in that you, you can play with people's fears in a fun way. But there are sometimes, particularly when it comes to phobia or phobias or post-traumatic stress disorder or you know, any kind of trauma that people have encountered, where triggering that is not a fun experience. It's like the difference between you know, perhaps riding a roller coaster and enjoying the thrills and you know, spills on there, or say being in a car crash. Even if you're not injured by the latter, it's going to be a terrifying and traumatic experience, even though the physical sensations of a mild car crash may not be any worse than being on a roller coaster, because it's it's triggering a different kind of trauma. Matt, have you ever had the experience where you've had to modify a game on the fly or change tack because either a player has told you if you've picked up by observing them that what you're doing or where the game is going is somewhere that is really going to provoke the wrong kind of of horror in them? Yeah, I have had once. It was actually a LARP game. They found the portrayal of a certain element in the game was something that would hit a bit too close to home. There was some incident that was going to happen, which effectively was um, against a like a day outing, where they were they were being taken out of the um, of the site to go to somewhere else. And I think a couple of offhand comments either really riled them up or made something click with the fact that they had been a patient at said care home where. Um, this was all being set, and they found it a little too close to uh, close to reality. Yeah, I think that point where it starts going into someone's you know really not just personal fears but you know personal traumas is that point at which you know it, it, the game goes from from being fun to being you know genuinely horrific. And you know we we, we say we want to play games to be scared, you know perhaps to be upset, to have our emotions stirred up. But, you know, there there are limits to that. And, you know, there are certainly, you know, things that people could do in games that would probably, you know, reduce me to a gibbering wreck, Um, you know, just by, you know, punching on on certain buttons. I wouldn't find that fun. I'd be really upset if they did that. And if they did that and, you know, sort of adopted that attitude that I, you know, I've seen on on these, these discussions of if you're not man enough to cope with it, you shouldn't be at my table... I'm sorry, that's not horror GMing, that's bullying. Okay, well, it's a creepy good night for me. It's a, a shivering cheerio for me. And a... Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com mm.
Ooh, I'm getting shivers already, Paul. Shivers. Well, put your clothes back on. 